Hello and welcome to this Digital Channel podcast. My name is George Hill and I'm Editor-in-Chief at Innovation Enterprise. This week, the editor for the Digital Channel, Charlie Salmon, spoke to Ben Fruman, Editor-in-Chief of TheWeek.com. Ben has been at The Week since 2011, having previously worked at Talking Points Memo, been an adjunct assistant professor at Columbia and a research assistant at Reuters. He will also be talking at the Digital Publishing Innovation Summit in New York on July 17th and 18th. Hi Ben, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So if we just jump straight into the first question, um, in your view, what have been the biggest challenges for digital publishers in the past few years? Big question, I know. Yeah, there are many, of course. Um, You know, I think from a business perspective, figuring out, uh, you know, how to turn, you know, if, if print dollars have become digital dimes or even digital pennies, you know, how we uh, really monetize the great content that we're creating in a way that makes sense, you know, sustainably for a business. And we, we've had success with that here at The Week, but it is one of the biggest challenges our industry faces as well. Um, similarly, just trying to um, figure out, um, you know, how best to not only serve these enormous digital audiences we have, but how how to, to, to keep them and, and how to, you know, turn them into, into a viable business. And I think you see a lot of publishers across the industry struggling with these things. Um, you know, there are, there are lots of small iterations of, uh, or pieces of the problem, you know, whether it's ad blockers, whether it's mobile, whether it's programmatic ads, whether it's, you know, the lack of engagement on a lot of websites, whether it's, you know, um, you know Facebook and Google eating all of our lunch. I think there are all sorts of aspects to this problem, but basically, you know, how do you turn uh, great content and, you know, a, a big and often engaged audience into a viable business? Mm-hmm. And I suppose that the fact with, with having to go for such a big reach, do you think that means that a lot of publishers will sort of not water down their content, but go for less of a sort, sort of subsect of society? Do you think content yeah, is therefore I, I, less politically engaged because it's trying to appeal to a wider audience? Or do you think that's not so much of a problem? Yeah, I, I do think a lot of publishers uh, have done stuff like that. I think, you know, in many aspects, there's like a race to the middle. And I mean that uh, politically, where, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of you know, people want to occupy that sort of safe middle. I also mean it, though, stylistically and topically, where... Um, you know, instead of having, you know, this sort of vibrant, um, diverse supply of websites with kind of niche topical interests, there is kind of a, um, a, a race to mimic what is seen as working well. So like, for mm-hmm. instance, you saw it a few years ago when Upworthy blew up, you know, there were immediately, you know, not only like 100 knockoff competitors doing exactly that same thing, but traditional publisher, publishers started aping that headline style. And yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think that um, because everybody's trying to figure it out, there is this race to kind of mimic what works. And so, you know, in some sense, politically, you see that race to the middle. But the other way you see it is kind of a race to the polls where, mm. you know, you get a lot of um, sort of, you know, uh, you know ideologically um, specific publishers speaking to that audience. So, for instance, you know, you'll get progressive publishers speaking to a progressive readership and trying to tell them why every progressive idea in their head is right and true. And obviously you do the same sorts of things on the right as well. It's a reinforcement. Um, we try to, 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's kind of an easy way to connect with an audience when you tell them things that they are, are predisposed to believing. And, you know, we do something different at the week where, you know, this is a place where people don't come to have their beliefs confirmed, but where they come to have their thoughts provoked. And it's, you know, as a result, you know, we're never going to have 100 million readers because there frankly aren't 100 million people who, who want that, you know, who want yeah. to challenge. Um, you know, that's sort of the space we occupy. And, and perhaps, and in some perhaps ways, nor should you. Yeah. What's that? I'm sorry? I said perhaps nor should you, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that you, you see publishers trying to figure this out in any number of ways. And as you suggested, like, sometimes it is a race to the middle. Mm. And so in terms of that, how do you, as a, someone that doesn't go for those polls or doesn't go for that mass audience, how do you get your content noticed? What sort of techniques do you use? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, knock on wood, a very healthy and diverse uh, mix of traffic sources. And, you know, look, like any website, um, almost by definition, is going to be overly vulnerable to their biggest source or sources of traffic, right? Like, you and know, for many, that's Facebook, really, isn't it? For many. Yeah, absolutely. So for a lot of publishers today, that's Facebook. For a lot of them, it's still search. For a lot of them, it might be a big refer, you know, whether it's like a Yahoo or an MSN or a Drudge Report, you know, one of, you know, a massive portal or refer. Um, and, you know, look, you know, the week has been um, vulnerable to various traffic sources over the years, too, as some other websites that I've worked at. Um, but we're we're pretty diverse these days, and we feel pretty good about it. So direct is our biggest source of traffic. Um, and, you know, it makes up something like like 25 to 35 percent of our traffic, just depending on the month. Um, and you know, a lot of that is is our newsletter business. Um, you know, a lot of it is you know, uh, readers literally typing the week.com into their browser. You know, some of direct, of course, is dark social. You know, people yeah. emailing or DJ or texting or slacking stuff to each other. We feel like direct is kind of the healthiest and most bankable source of traffic because it's either a reader who has said, I want to sign up to have the week in my inbox, or I have made the week a part of my daily reading habit, or I like the week so much that I'm going to one-to-one, peer-to-peer share it with the people I care the most about. It's the most organic. Absolutely. And it's the most engaged and it suggests the most loyal readership. And so we feel really good that that's our big single source of traffic. Um, the next biggest thing for us is social. You know, Facebook is, is probably, you know, 20 to 25 percent of our traffic, depending on the month. Obviously, it's a huge piece of our traffic. Um, it frankly is um, we're less reliant on Facebook than I think some of our competitors who might get, you know, 40 to 70 percent of their traffic from Facebook. But it's still a big deal for us. Um, Search is still probably our number three, 15 to 20% of our traffic, and then a variety of referral sources. But it all feels pretty diverse, a little bit more like um, like a, a, a well-diversified mutual fund than like a hot stock traffic strategy. And, yeah. um, and we feel good about the mix. Yeah, that sounds healthy. And then, I mean, when you are too over-reliant on Facebook, you're kind of yeah, at the whim of the changes to the timeline, aren't you? Because uh, Absolutely. And you see a lot changes. of publishers going through that. Right. Like, you know, that guy wrote that great uh, piece on Medium last week about, you know, what Tribune has seen, you know, as far as, mm. you know, yeah. Facebook thing. And like, you know, it's been passed around a lot and a lot of publishers have sort of shared similar experiences. And it's true. Like when you get like half your traffic from Facebook and you're building your business on this foundation that you just fundamentally do not control. And, and, and so, Facebook has no obligation and no uh, demand to, to keep things the same. You know, they're not being held to account absolutely. by anyone. No, I mean, and they're their own business. I mean, you know, mm. they, they they don't have to. They don't owe us anything. And so 
Um, you know, I think that I understand why publishers rely on Facebook. We rely on Facebook, you know, to, to a certain extent, you know, you sort of have to, to, to play in digital media. You know, they got a, you know, a billion point something users. You know, you, you no, no one else there. offers that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But, but it is, um, you know, a fundamentally risky thing to build so much of your business on a source of traffic that you have zero control over. Um, and, you know, I think publishers are starting, starting to feel that. Mm. And in, in terms of, so how do you, in terms of Facebook content, how do you uh, sort of assess how well a piece of content is done? There's a temptation, isn't there, to go for the vanity metrics of, you know, likes, comments, I suppose shares are a bit more meaningful. But how do I mean, you, on, that... sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, it sort of depends. But the thing that we want um, the most, other than a follow, of course, you know, like the most valuable thing to us is to get a new follower on Facebook because that's somebody who we can present with our content, you know, hundreds of times in the future. Um, But the next most valuable thing is a share, for sure. Um, We would vastly prefer a share to a like or to a comment. You know, a share gives us an opportunity to get hundreds more likes or comments or clicks. Um, A click is almost, I would say, like the least valuable thing from Facebook because every other action that somebody might take on Facebook, a follow, a share, a like, a comment, um, gives us the opportunity to get new clicks. You know, a click, yeah. you know, is is the kind of like endpoint on that on the destination and the, you know, it doesn't give us anything else. And so when we are crafting things to share on Facebook, like we're trying to imagine um what will get people to share this thing. You know, we really picture our post one, sort of as a holistic package. So we think about the sentiment that we're using as the lead-in. We think about the photo. We think about the headline. We think about the deck. You know, we will craft those things particularly for Facebook. You know, I, like so many publishers, we change the headline, you know, on Facebook um, mm-hmm. compared to what it would have been on the article page itself. Um, but we're really trying to think about that entire post being a vehicle for a reader to say something about themselves to their social group, you know, and and how can we craft this in a way that they can use this as a vehicle to kind of pour themselves into and say something about themselves, their social Mm -hmm. group, whether it is, I'm smart, I'm funny, um, I am full of righteous indignation, um, have nostalgia together, like whatever that emotion or statement is, we want to think about it. And obviously this is so much more art than science, right? Like it is, fundamentally a subjective thing to try to figure that out and so there's no right or wrong way the key thing is just that we always think about it that we don't just post stuff on facebook in a kind of like perfunctory way but Mm -hmm. that we're thinking about it and it is you know frankly like almost like a psychological game or experiment i mean it's fascinating when you start thinking Mm -hmm. about it but uh, you know the key thing is just to think about it and and we're always trying that way it's really interesting in the sense that uh, we, we can all agree that there's a lot of quite incredible news <laughs> over the past year. So in terms of delivering that news, if everyone's delivering that news and it's so incredible in of itself, then I guess you do have to, as you said, you do have to give the reader a reason to share it in terms of saying something about them by sharing it. I think that's a really interesting dynamic. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and you're right. Like, And so much of it starts too with like the, you know, conceiving the content itself, right? Like, you know, we very much feel like, you know, unless news is so big that we would be embarrassed not to have it on our site, there's just no point in being the 50th news organization to write up the exact same thing, right? Like there has to be something unique about what we're saying about it, or, you know, maybe we're pulling out, you know, the 20th paragraph of the New York Times story and making that our headline or, you know, but whatever it is, 
you know, obviously there's a level of big news where like we just have to report it, even if we were the thousandth news organization. Oh God, I would hope we were never that slow on anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but like some some things are big enough where you you, you just need them on your site no matter what. But but in general, um, you know. It, like speed and originality matter. And so if we're not going to be among the first, then we better have something kind of original or fresh or a, just a, a, a little bit of mustard on the fastball to, to make it different. Mm-hmm. Um, if we talk video content, um, sure, sure. do you think video content is something that all brands and all publishers should be looking to make regardless of budget? Because you can, I suppose, make it on any budget now. Um, but do you think it's worthwhile? Because you hear a lot of people saying that video first should be the the way forward. But... Uh, my my opinion on this is is probably uh, controversial, uh, particularly with our own advertising and marketing departments. But but no, I I don't think that every publisher should be doing video. I think that um, you know there has been a race among um, traditional publishers of words and pictures to get into the video game because of some vague sense of advertising demand. And I think that a lot of really great news organizations have spent a ton of money producing video with one, no tangible or clear audience service, and two, no clear business end. I mean, I think there's a sense that like advertisers want video, but like what that even means, I think, like if you ask a basic follow-up question, like, well, what do you mean by video? Do you know what you mean? Mm. <laughs> like, really compelling series? Do you mean volume? Do you mean do you need, you know, this video attached to articles all over you? I mean, it just, I, I, I think that a lot of publishers have raced into this. Um, um, and look, like here at The Week, we do do some video, but I, I um, feel that at, at our core, like, Video is outside of our core area of expertise. You know, like we're not ABC News, we're not CBS mm-hmm. News. Like we're we're a magazine. You know, we we are excellent at what we do. We are writers and editors and columnists and you know. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there needs to be a place for writing. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't want to, you know. And I think you know there there are places you know like I think Zuckerberg was saying like you know within five years like most content on Facebook will be consumed you know in video form rather than reading, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't want to be a part of a media where people don't read things, you know? Like, I think yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think there is a place for, for, for writing and for reading, and I don't think that everybody has to be in the uh, moving picture business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, that said, like, we do do some video, and we would be foolish not to do some video, and I, I do think it would be foolish of any traditional publisher to just completely eschew video like you have to do some of it but i don't think that every um traditional publisher of words needs to all of a sudden become a video company and and some some digital publishers have done that and um i think it's a mistake or at least would be a mistake for for us or for our kind of publishing so because so, particularly um, with political commentary if you then start only making videos that becomes more about speech writing than 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 writing and i think it's a different thing altogether um absolutely and and I think that some things readers just want to read, you know, like if like whether it's a news brief, you know, that takes you 20 seconds to read or whether it's a really smart and thought provoking thousand word op ed column. Like, mm-hmm. I think those are things that people want to read and not things that people want to watch. Um, is there anyone that you are particularly in awe of? It's a difficult question to answer, I suppose. 
Yeah, um, I mean, awe is probably uh, uh, <laughs> a strong word. And who do you admire? But, <laughs> the you know, look, yeah, like I really admire the Atlantic, and I always have. You know, they're one of our closest competitors in that. Not that we're doing the same thing, but I think that we are trying to occupy the same place in a smart person's life. You know, we want to be the place where a smart, busy person would come to have their thoughts provoked and to think about things in a new and interesting way. And I've always admired the Atlantic. I think they do that really well. Um, I frankly admire Bill Simmons and The Ringer. I mean, I'm still wistful for Grantland, but I think that they've had this really entrepreneurial spirit and I think do really interesting things, you know, as he always has uh, with the mix of pop culture and sports. Um, and also I think their multimedia offerings have always been really interesting. Um, you know, I, I admire many of our competitors, you know, whether, you know, places on the left, like, you know, Slade or Box or Mother Jones or places on the right, you know, uh, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, National Review or Red State or, you know, any number of, of uh, yeah, I actually quite like, you know, Free Beacon and the Federalists, I think do interesting things. But mm -hmm. yeah, in awe of, um, I, I probably couldn't couldn't name a competitor who I'm I'm in awe of. Well, but, I think it's healthy. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great work out there, and you know, as a as a competitor once told me, it, it it's not zero sum, right? Like we can all do great work without necessarily eating each other's lunch, and so mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there for sure. And um, in terms of every brand now is looking to do content marketing, so there's a lot of content out there. How do you think that we've kind of covered this earlier, but how do you think traditional content producers can stay ahead by, you know, by virtue of being traditional? Oh, like as far as like competing, like because we're like we've traditionally been the intermediary and all of a sudden, like, you know, whether it's President Trump or Pepsi is just speaking directly to consumers. Like, how do we maintain yeah. relevance? Yeah, how do they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think um, because of our, our judgment and our perspective. So like, you know, here at the week, like really what we have to offer readers is is our judgment and our kind of expertise you know like the promise of our magazine which is really you know we have this tremendously successful magazine it's sort of you know the conventional wisdom around print news weeklies is they're all in trouble right and we're we're sort of the exception that proves the rule like we have this tremendously successful weekly news magazine that is really a digest of the most important news and the best ideas of the week and you know it plays this really you know specific and important role in the lives of hundreds of thousands of readers. And I think that the reason is because we live in this hyper-partisan, noisy, constantly on-the-go world where we're just all bombarded with all this content and all these ideas. And I think people could be forgiven for um, you know, wanting this kind of fair and authoritative filter to say, here's what matters, here's what what's interesting, and the rest of it you can safely ignore. And <laughs> I think that's the role for traditional publishers to, you know, at the risk of sounding like a card-carrying member of the media elite, like to be gatekeepers, you know, mm -hmm. not because we're somehow, you know, in some paternalistic sense protecting readers or, you know, you know, like kind of holding their hand. But but I do think readers and, and just people are, are so awash in content that the role of the traditional media can be to find the best stuff and to put it in perspective and to say, um, this is true and this is not true and this is important or, you know, if we didn't share this with you, you can probably safely ignore it. And um, I think that's where we maintain our relevance, by, by being that filter, by being that kind of helpful friend to readers. Um, yeah, that's an important role. 
yeah, do you feel so. like you have a responsibility? So, with, yeah, with the proliferation of news uh, sites, I guess that harbors a situation in which uh, fake news. I don't want you. I mean, we're not going to talk about fake news too much. But do you think how much of the responsibility do you think that publishers such as yourselves have for calling out fake news, or do you think it's best to not engage with it at all? Yeah, no, I, I think we we have a tremendous responsibility to um, um, both identify and communicate the difference between truth and lies and. Mm-hmm. We obviously like this has been really hard over the last year, you know, one with the proliferation of fake news. And I actually think that's a term worth defining because I think it gets thrown around a lot. When I say fake news, what I mean is the kind of roguish profiteers or professional mischief makers who are deliberately propagating known falsehoods either to make money or with the intention to deceive. And yeah, I think, as opposed to contentious politics articles, you know, there's a, there is a big yeah, difference. Yeah, and I think it's fundamentally different than like the New York Times getting something wrong or even like the Washington Post pushing what conservatives might say is like a partisan narrative. Like, you know, there's 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 just fundamentally a difference between what we might call fake news and flawed news or, um, you know, or even ideologically driven news. And yeah, like when something is straight up false, when it's like, you know, this is not correct, I do think the media has a responsibility to say loudly and clearly, this is bullshit. Like, this is not yeah. true. This is fact. And, you know, I honestly, like, I mean, I, while I have tremendous respect for the office of the presidency, I think that's true, even if the president says things that are just fundamentally and demonstrably not true. And, Absolutely. Uh, the, the president has, has um, you know, uh, uh, um, pushed any number of lies, um, not just during the campaign, but since he's become mm-hmm. president. And I, I do think the media has a responsibility to, to call it out as such. And I don't mean it in a glib way, and I don't mean it in a way where it's anything other than clear that what, um, you know, our government has said is not true. But, you know, I I do think the media has a fundamentally adversarial role with the government, uh, regardless of the party affiliation or person running the government, you know, as part of our job. And we also have a fundamental role of upholding and communicating the truth. And that means calling a liar a liar and calling a lie a lie. In terms of uh, covering politics for the digital generation, your your presentation, um, the necessity for speed, how do you offset that with making sure that everything's factually accurate so you're not contributing to that problem? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we always want to be really fast because one, like there's a, like a business and traffic imperative where like, you know, I don't want to like, you know, quote Talladega Nights and say, if you're not first, you're last, but like it's, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of close to that, right? I mean, like yeah. if you're not, not among the first, like why bother? Mm. Um, but also like we have a duty to our readers to, you know, we, the promise at the week that we make to readers is like, we're going to tell you what matters now. And so if something happens, like we want to, communicate that to readers as quickly as possible. Now that said, like we want to get it right. And so for us, you know, we are very rarely at the week breaking news of our own. You know, we are fundamentally um, either curators and aggregators. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. I think, you know, those words have, have come to like almost be dirty words on the internet, but we actually think of ourselves as aggregators of best practice, where if we, if we curate, you know, somebody else's reporting and share it with our audience, like we think they should be psyched about what we did with it. And the fact that we're highlighting their work and giving them all kinds of credit and linking back mm-hmm. to them. Um, but, but we are, you know, fundamentally curators and aggregators, at least in our news coverage. And so, yeah, like we have rules about sources we trust and making sure that there are 
um, multiple sources for for things that might seem shaky. We're always wary of you know single source or anonymously sourced reports. We're always wary of of news reports from places that we don't we haven't heard of or places that we think have a bad track record of getting things wrong. Um, we we always want to be careful, and so you know it is always a subjective judgment call of the editors of balancing you know um, speed and reliability, right? You know, like we could wait until. 30 places have reported out a fact, you know, and then we would be really slow or we could report it based on, you know, one opaque tweet from a reporter we don't really tw- trust and be really fast. And like, mm-hmm. you know, the, right path, the right path is somewhere in the middle of those two things. So is that, is that an editorial position then? That's to, to, to not be the uh, news breakers. I think it's a sensible one. Thanks, thanks. Um, how much, so let's, talk, let's talk data in publishing because as you said, it's, a, it's an art as much as a science, but I suppose there is a science behind that too. Um, Absolutely. How much does data influence your decision-making on a sort of day-to-day basis? How much does it actually affect your working practices? Yeah, I mean, it, it does a lot. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, so I began my career as a newspaper reporter, and, you know, I had almost no information about how readers interacted with the journalism I was producing other than, like, running into, like, gadflies at a city council meeting or like having some reader call me up on my landline at my desk you know i mean there was there was just so we had such little feedback and so i have never really ceased to marvel at just how much information we have about digitally how our readers interact with our content and so you know i'm obsessed with it you know one of the first things i did when i became editor of our digital operation was install a giant screen in our newsroom that has chirpies on it at all times you know and um you know i'm i'm obsessed with the data that said what i care about most is excellence you know what i care about most is serving our readers and being true to our our brand promise and mission and so it's always a balancing act so like, yes, we do both short-term and long-term make note of things that connect with our readers. We're always experimenting with things, whether it's different topics, whether it's different headline constructions, whether, um, you know, it's kind of testing something in a different way, like, you know, how might we try to do this in a way that connects with people on Facebook, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to do something in a way that connects with people on search. And then we, we absolutely, in a pretty uh, rigorous way, analyze that data and try to see what's working and what's not. But our editorial judgment and our kind of brand identity and promise always trump, um, you know, what the data might tell us in the sense that like, you know, I'm sure there are lessons that we could learn from the data that would double our traffic, but that would um, really, as far as I'm concerned, kneecap our brand. And so we would never do those things, you know, Um, like being true to ourselves is always more important, but we try to use the data to figure out, like within the bounds of being true to our readers and true to ourselves, what can we do better and what can we learn? And um, so, you know, it's like so many things, it's a balancing act. Yeah, so there's a really interesting toss-up in terms of, yeah, well, how do you define a successful uh, successful publisher in the sense that having being true to your brand, in my eyes, is the successful publisher. But then I suppose others would say that it's about reach and traffic and then revenue comes from that. Um, yeah, yeah, it must be a difficult balancing act, especially with shareholders. Yeah, I think it's a mix of things. And, you know, look, like when I go in and and talk to our board of directors, you know, um, every so often, you know, the kind of the metrics, the metrics of success that that we kind of define together are are one, the brand and and our editorial excellence, two is is traffic and audience and reach, and three is revenue. I mean, those are the three things, all things that we care about. Um, And, 
I would hate to rank any of them above the other, but but those are the metrics of success for us. It, it's money, it's audience reach, and it's it's the brand and just editorial excellence and reader, reader service. So if, we, if we're going to get our crystal balls out, um, which uh, which area of the industry do you expect to see the most massive rapid growth in the next sort of two or three years? Because I guess video has been, uh, that's the one I've noticed has been the most in the last, last two years, really exploded. Yeah. Um, is there any way you can see the industry going? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think that probably the safest answer is still that video will see this tremendous explosion in the next two to three years. And I think mm-hmm. you'll continue to see the explosion of short videos you can read, right? You know, and that really, I think, has been the biggest kind of, I don't want to say innovation, but sort of change in the way that people consume video online is I don't even think of YouTube as the primary place for videos anymore. I think of Facebook as the yeah, primary indeed. place for videos. And, Outside you know, of music, Facebook, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And on Facebook, like videos that are, are well-crafted for Facebook are meant to be played without the sound or at least able to mm. be played without the sound. Like there are these short videos you can read. And I think that there will still be um, a real proliferation there. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, I do think that there is something of a consolidation coming in media or in digital media. And you sort of see all the big powerhouses in tech kind of um, positioning themselves to try to be the new internet. So, you know, <laughs> Facebook is obviously doing it where they want to have everything there and they want to fucking in publishers content and they want to be, they just want to be the internet. So you never leave Facebook. You see it with Google too, like, you know, um, you know, to a lesser extent, you see it with Twitter. Um, but even like, you know, like Apple with Apple News, you see it with MSN and the way they syndicate publishers content, like who knows what's going to happen with Yahoo and AOL um, when they eventually yeah. uh, or, or you know, sign their blood oaths together this summer. Uh, you know, but I think you see a lot of these powerhouses wanting to be the next internet. And I think the, the challenge for publishers is you kind of have to get in bed with all of them because mm. if one of them is going to become the next internet or if two or three of them are going to be like what's effectively the internet in five years, you can't miss out on it. But I, I do think that what would happen as a result of that is you'll have the very kind of high-end and giant publishers thriving, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, you know, those those kinds of publishers. Mm-hmm. And I think that you'll have, um, you know, relatively smaller but kind of high-end and, you know, boutique or niche publications like ours thriving. But I, I do think that there's, like, kind of a fat space in the middle where, like, digital media is pretty crowded. And I'm not sure if there's room for everybody, um, especially, you know, when so much of what it is is 50 websites writing up the same thing in the same way. Um, you know, I, I do think there's going to be a calling of sorts. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, yeah, because I suppose the internet when it was democratic when it first started, so the idea of having large, you know, huge brands in control of the internet could be quite scary to some, but I guess if it does cut out the, the 50 articles reporting the same story, then you can see a positive in that. Um, yeah, and I'm not even sure it's a good thing. Like, I just think it's it's what I think mm, might happen. It's just the way it's going, for, yeah. For better, yeah, for, for better or worse. And, you know, I may be wrong. Look, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidential election. I've been wrong a lot. Oh, we, we all did. Didn't think we'd be leaving the EU either. But, um, yeah, I suppose <laughs> what happens with the, with the video content when you talk about it's curated for Facebook, like, what you end up having, I find this really strange, you end up having a, essentially a slideshow with overlaid text. That's right, yeah. That must be a way a lot, of, a lot of people consume their news, and I think that's incredibly limiting, surely, for the writers. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, we do do some stuff that way because it's, you know, it's a new form that we want to experiment with. But we're also, like, the week, like, we pride ourselves on, like, just having great writing. You know, we want to be a place where, like, there's just really smart, sophisticated writing. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, with all due respect to those videos you can watch, like, you're not going to be, like, you know, turning these felicitous turns of phrase and, like, crafting a beautiful argument when you're, you know... Yeah, this is not the medium. Yeah, totally. Um, so, uh, you know, I think and hope that there will always be a place for this sort of um, just great writing um, that, that us and other publishers traffic in. Um, you know, again, it may not be the sort of thing that 200 million people want to read, but I do think there are millions of people who will always want to read great writing. Well, that's reassuring because one, one of my flatmates is particularly uh, <laughs> dour on the, on the state of consumption of media on the internet and he thinks this has been a sort of general dumbing down so it's nice to hear that someone thinks that great writing will prevail and it surely it has to because <laughs> <laughs> there's enough people there that want it and it's i mean great writing has prevailed for you know thousands of years like you know i i, I would hope that uh you know uh, yeah, he's just jaded Final, final question. We'll end on um, what the audience at the summit will be able to take away from your presentation. If you could yeah, just go into a bit of detail about your presentation, what you're going to cover. Yeah. So, um, you know, I haven't crafted it yet, so I don't have any uh, uh, um, uh, particularly uh, detailed revelations. To offer, <laughs> you got, you got, but... month, you got months. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, look, like often um, the things that I like to talk about are one, um, you know, how, how how we can serve um, this changing audience. And I mean that in a few ways. So one is, I think the audience um, today is is more time limited than ever, right? And so how do we connect with them when we're lucky to get a minute out of them, right? And I think both concision in conceptualizing content and writing content and editing content and packaging content, even in web design, like, you know, like, how do we how do we deliver things to readers in a super concise, time efficient way? Um, you know, but also, you know, how do we how do we challenge readers? I mean, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, so much of what we see on the internet now is um, like preaching to the converted, right? You know, mm-hmm. conservative publishers talking to conservative readers, progressive publishers talking to progressive readers, and honestly, like I think that you see it even with um, publishers that are traditionally thought of um, as mainstream centrist publications, you know, like like the Washington Post and the New York Times, both of which I admire tremendously, are absolutely talking to a relatively liberal or at least center-left readership. And I think that, you know, the challenge of delivering news and commentary and analysis in this incredibly polarizing age um, is a real challenge. So, you know, th- those are probably the main points that I will uh, will hit, talking about both, um, you know, um, how do we serve an audience in this both hyper-polarized area? Um, how do we, you know, engage them in ideologically diverse and intellectually rigorous debate? And, you know, the kind of, you know, how do we serve the, the civic good with this exchange mm-hmm. of, of, of different ideas? But how do we do it in a way that makes the best use of, of a time-pressed uh, reader's uh, moment? Because that's often all you get is just a moment. Mm-hmm. And I suppose with, with, if the Trump election has done anything, it's taken that uh, American right-wing politics further to the right. I think we can agree on that. But so with that audience 
might potentially be further to the right. So I guess, yeah, as you said, it's tougher for sort of centrist, centre-left publications to to straddle both because it just seems like you'd have to be very disparate in your voices. Yeah, and I think I think everybody is skating toward extremes, right? Like I think mm. that you see it obviously with like Trump's, you know, populist right-wing base. I also think you see it with the liberal opposition to Trump. That, Absolutely. Um, you know, when when you have an extremely controversial um, leader or figure or party or movement, um, you see that its supporters and its opponents um, often, you know, veer um, toward toward their respective poles, and center kind of clears out. And look, I mean, you see it in Congress too. Like, there's basically no such thing as blue dog Democrats anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Um, you have a lot of really liberal members of Congress and a lot of really conservative members of Congress. And even what it's meant to be a moderate is, you know, um, you know, like if you looked at like a moderate Democratic senator today compared to, uh, you know, 25 years ago, I mean, it's almost laughable how different it is or at least how few their numbers are. And so, yeah, I think in every aspect of American life, um, whether it's our actual political institutions, whether it's the media, whether it's, you know, uh, community organizations and churches or whether it's just people, I do think there's this veering toward extremes, which makes it um, difficult to be a publisher who wants to uh, confront people with ideas that don't conform to their pre-existing beliefs. But I think it's frankly more important than ever. And, you know, here at The Week, like we actually become almost a mantra for us, like now more than ever, like readers need what we're doing. And um, I think there's mm-hmm. a lot for a lot of publishers to learn in that. Well, I think that's a fascinating note to end on. So thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. Hey, my pleasure, man. Great talking to you. Thanks. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Oh, shit.